This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. You've probably heard the male gaze or the white gaze, but what about the coded gaze? Computer scientist Joy Bolamwini coined the term while in grad school at MIT. As a brown-skinned black woman, the facial recognition software program she was working on couldn't detect her face until she put on a white mask. This experience set Bolamwini on a path to look at the social implications of artificial intelligence, including bias in facial analysis technology and the potential harm it could cause millions of people like her. Everything from dating app glitches to being mistaken as someone else by police. She's written a new book about her life and work in this space called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. Last month, after meeting with Bolamwini and other AI experts, President Biden recently issued an executive order aimed at making AI safer and more secure. This landmark executive order is a testament to what we stand for. Safety, security, trust, openness, American leadership, and the undeniable rights endowed by a creator that no creator, no creation can take away. Proving once again that America's strength is not just the power of its example, but the example of its power. Joy Bolamwini is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, an organization that raises awareness about the implications of AI. She is also a Rhodes Scholar and has a Ph.D. from MIT. Her thesis uncovered large racial and gender bias in AI services from companies like Microsoft, IBM, and Amazon. Bolamwini's research was also featured in the Netflix documentary Coded Bias. And Dr. Joy Bolamwini, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. The coded gaze is this term that you coined a few years ago after an experience you had with a program that you were building called Aspire Mirror. Can you explain what the tech was supposed to do and why it couldn't detect your face? Sure. So at the time, I was a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab, and I took a class called Science Fabrication. The idea was to make something fanciful. So I made a kind of art installation that used face tracking technology to detect the location of a person's face in a mirror and then add a digital mask. And so this is what I was working on when things went a little sideways. So in that experience of working on the class project, which was an art installation, I found that the software I was using didn't detect my face that consistently until I put on a white mask. I was working on the system around Halloween, so I happened to just have a white mask in my office. So when I was debugging and trying to figure it out, that's how I came to see that my dark skin wasn't detected, but the white mask was. And that led to all kinds of questions. Is it just my face? Is it the lighting conditions? Is it the angle? Or is there something more... Uh, at play. And so for me, this was really my first encounter with what I now term the coded gaze. And so you've likely heard of the male gaze or the white gaze. This is a cousin concept really about who has the power to shape technology and whose uh, preferences and priorities are baked in, as well as also sometimes whose prejudices are baked in. Well, when you first started to speak about this, people said stuff to you like, well, I mean, it could be the camera because there wasn't a lot of light. There is no bias in math algorithms. You break apart this idea through your research on cameras. Can you briefly describe what you found? Uh, yeah, so I, too, wanted to believe that tech was completely neutral. That's why I got to it, right? I thought, yeah. okay, I can escape the isms and messiness uh, of people. But when it came to the type of tech I was exploring, computer vision, technology, detecting a pattern of a face, I really had to ask myself, okay, let's go back and think not just computer vision right now, but camera technology in general. And when you look at the ways in which camera technology and particularly film photography 
uh, was developed, it was optimized for light skin. And in particular, the chemical compositions used to expose film used to be calibrated by something called a Shirley card. Now, a Shirley card was an image of a white woman named Shirley. Later on, it be, it, there were others, but it became known as the uh, Shirley card. And that was literally the standard by which the chemical composition uh, would be calibrated. And the issue is that people who didn't look like Shirley <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, weren't as well accounted uh, for. And some people might argue, oh, it's just the limitations of the technology. But actually, when furniture companies complained and chocolate companies complained, I can't see the difference between the milk chocolate and the dark, and the dark chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> right? Or the fine grain in my mahogany. They updated the chemical composition. The darker skinned among us got a little bit of a windfall, but it showed that it wasn't uh, necessarily just a limitation of the technology, but a limitation in who was thought worthy of being seen. Right. Going back to this mask, I mean, the discovery, Joy, it just floors me because of what the mask represents in our day-to-day lives. I mean, the figurative mask has been used to describe what Black and brown people wear in order to fit the norms or expectations of the dominant culture. And from the very start, this was not lost on you, although you wanted to find a reason that wasn't social. I really did. I was hoping that it was uh, <laughs> it was just down uh, to technical issues. And as I was having that experience of coding in the white mask, I really thought about uh, the book Black Skin, White Mask, which is talking about the ways in which people change themselves to fit a dominant uh, group. And it, I just didn't think it would be so literal where I was changing my dark skin face to be made visible by a mm-hmm. machine. And mm-hmm. I thought the last place I would be coding in white face would be MIT. Hmm. You talk quite a bit about the different spaces that you work in and you've worked in in, um, in technology. Language is very important to you when talking about all of this, especially when we talk about facial recognition technologies. There are two types, right? So there's facial verification and facial identification. Can you break down the differences? Oh, absolutely. So when we're thinking about the ways in which uh, computers read faces, I'm thinking of a set of questions a computer uh, might be asking. And so first, there's actually face detection. Is there a face at all? And so the experience I had of coding in a white mask to have my face detected was an example of face detection failure. So that's one kind of way a computer can analyze a face. Another kind of way a computer might analyze a face is guessing an attribute of the face. So let me guess the age, let me guess the gender. Some might Mm -hmm. try to uh, guess ethnicity and others might try to guess your emotion. But like we know you can put on a fake smile. The guess doesn't mean what is being displayed on the face actually is true to how somebody feels or identifies uh, internally. And then when we get to what's more technically known as facial recognition, to your point, there are two flavors. So facial verification is also known as one-to-one matching. So this is the type of facial recognition you encounter if, say, you're trying to unlock a phone. So there's a face that's being expected. Then there's a face that's attempting to have access. And there's that one-to-one match. Now, When we get to facial identification, also known as one-to-many matching, this is when you might think of, you know, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise being uh, detected in an airport among a ton of people. So that's the surveillance uh, kind of use case. And so one of the things I 
really tried to do in the book was to walk people through different ways in which AI systems uh, can be integrated into various types of technology. So there's a deeper understanding when people are hearing about uh, news headlines or uh, new breakthroughs uh, right. in AI. So I really appreciate you asking about the nuances between these things. Right, because once you started speaking about this, you had a TED Talk a few years ago. You started getting a slew of letters from people whose lives were really impacted, in some cases almost ruined. One person wrote you from jail believing that they were locked up because of false facial recognition. There was a false facial recognition match. Can you go into more detail on why something like this could happen? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So even after the people who would actually send me letters, there were also news stories. One recent one that sticks with me is the arrest of Portia Woodruff due to facial recognition misidentification. Portia was eight months pregnant when she was falsely arrested for committing a carjacking. And I, I don't know anyone who's eight months pregnant jacking mm. cars, mm -hmm. you know? So there's also this question of this over-reliance on machines, even when common sense might indicate there could be other alternative uh, suspects. And to your question, how does it happen? How is it that someone can be misidentified uh, by a machine? So we have to look at the ways in which we teach machines to recognize the pattern of a face. And so the approach to this type of pattern recognition is often machine learning. And when we talk about machine learning, we're talking about training AI systems that learn from a set of data. So you have a data set that would contain many examples of a human face. And from that data set, using various techniques, the model would be trained to detect the pattern of a face. And then you can go further and say, okay, let's train the model to find a specific face. What my research showed and what others have shown as well is many of these data sets were not representative of the world at all. I started calling them pale male data sets because right. I would look into the data sets and I would go through and count, right? How many light-skinned people, how many dark-skinned people, how many uh, women, how many men, and so forth. And some of the really important data sets in our field, they could be 70% men, over 80% lighter-skinned individuals. Mm -hmm. And these sorts of data sets could be considered gold standards, the ones we look to to judge progress in our field. So it became clear to me that, oh, the data that we're training these systems on and also the data that we're using to test how well they work don't include a lot of people. And so it's not then so surprising that you would have uh, higher misidentification rates for people who were less represented when these types of systems were being developed in the first place. And so when you look at people like Portia Woodruff, who was uh, falsely arrested due to facial recognition misidentification, when you look at Robert Williams, who was falsely arrested due to facial misidentification in front of his two uh, young daughters, when you look at uh, Najir Parks, when you look at Randall Reed, Randall was arrested for a crime that occurred in a state he had never even set foot in. Mm. Right. And all of these people I mentioned, they're all dark skinned individuals. There's something else that your research also found. And I want to get a clear understanding of why this happens, too. Why is it that in some cases this technology misgenders people with dark skin? This has actually happened to me, I admit, while playing some of those TikTok facial recognition games. It always thinks that I'm a guy. <laughs> so this was uh, what I ran into after my uh, TED Talk. So I did my TED Talk, you mentioned a bit earlier, and I had my TED profile image. And I was showing the example of coding in a white mask, face detection failure. And so I decided to use my TED profile image and just upload it to the online demos of a number of companies, some well-known companies. And I noticed that some didn't detect my face 
but the ones that did detect my face were labeling me male. And that's when I started actually looking at gender classification. And as I went and I looked at the research on gender classification, I saw with um, some prior studies, actually older women tended to be uh, misgendered uh, more often uh, than uh, younger women. Mm -hmm. And I also started looking at the composition of the various gender classification testing data sets, the benchmarks, and so forth. And it's a similar kind of story to uh, the dark skin. Here, it's not just the proportion of representation, but what type of woman is represented. So for example, many of these face data sets are face data sets of celebrities. Mm. And if you look at women who tend to be celebrated, <laughs> women who tend yeah, to be... they're lighter skin women. Lighter skin women, but also fit very specific gender presentation norms uh, and stereotypes as well. And so if you have systems that are trained on some type of ideal form of woman that doesn't actually... <laughs> fit many ways of being a woman, this learned uh, gender presentation does not reflect the world. Well, in 2019, you spoke before the House on facial recognition technology, and I want to play a clip of House Rep Michael Cloud, a Republican of Texas, asking you about the implications of private companies having access and using facial recognition technology. Let's listen. You mentioned Facebook uh, in your remarks, and I find that interesting because I'm extremely concerned about the government having this kind of unchecked ability. Um, I would be curious to get your thoughts of corporations having the same sort of ability, and, and, and also, Ms. Guliani, if you want to speak to that. Absolutely. So you're looking at a platform that has over 2.6 billion users. And over time, Facebook has been able to amass enormous facial uh, recognition capabilities using all of those photos that we tagged without our permission. What we're seeing is that we don't necessarily have to accept this as the default. So in the EU where GDPR was passed, because there's a provision for biometric data consent, they actually have an option where you have to opt in. Right now, we don't have that in the U.S., and that's something we could immediately uh, require today. That was our guest, Joy Bolamwini, answering a question from House member Michael Cloud about private company access to facial recognition technology. You've brought this up time and time again about permissions and opting in, opting out. We've seen um, lots of talk from the White House and really from Congress more broadly about taking steps, but there hasn't been steps yet to regulate or at the very least push for an option for people to opt whether they want their images to be used in these larger data sets. What are some of the biggest challenges for you as you talk about this with lawmakers? One of the challenges is awareness. Uh, Oftentimes, so many of the ways in which AI systems are adopted or deployed uh, are not known until uh, there are issues. I remember the Algorithmic Justice League, we actually did an op-ed about the IRS adopting uh, facial recognition technology for access to uh, basic tax services. And one of the biggest challenges is the narrative of consent versus the reality of coercive consent. And this is what I mean by that. So you go to the IRS website and you're told that, okay, this is optional. Unless if you're creating a new account. Okay, so then when you're creating the new account, they're saying, okay, your option is to use this uh, third party to sign up. And then if you sign up for the third party and you actually go to their website and you read uh, their conditions, uh, they'll say, you don't have to use us, but if you use us, you're going to waive away your right to a class action a lawsuit. We can't guarantee you that this technology is going to work. And so like technically on paper, you don't actually have to use this. 
But the reality is a different、um, scenario. And then we get the flip when we're looking at facial recognition use within airports. On their websites for the TSA, it will say this is an opt in program. That's what it says.、Mm-hmm. TSA officers are here to treat you with dignity and respect. That's what it says on the website. So I go to airports, I travel often, and what I see are agents just telling people to step up and look at the camera.、Mm-hmm. But you can actually say you have to opt into it. You can say no? Well, opting in, if we are saying this is opt in, you should be asked if you want to do it. Instead,、mm-hmm. what you're being Told is to step up to the camera. So, what's meant to be an opt in process in the way that their policy is written is actually executed in an opt out fashion. And many people don't even know that they can opt out. And in fact, it was supposed to be opt in. Our guest today is Joy Bolamwini. Her new book is titled Unmasking AI My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800 Discover to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human led and tech powered. It's all part of the new equation from PWC. Hey, it's Terry Gross. Since you're listening to the Fresh Air podcast, I hope that means you like what we do here. You probably already know that your financial support is what makes our work possible, as well as the news and podcasts you listen to across the NPR network. Even though our show is available to you for free, it's not free to produce. If you already donate to public media, thank you. But if you're listening and are thinking about becoming a supporter, Now is a great time to start. Today is Giving Tuesday. It's an international day of giving. You have options. With Fresh Air Plus, your donation gets you sponsor free shows and exclusive bonus episodes. You can also make a tax deductible donation to your local NPR station, to the NPR network, or all of the above. I hope you'll consider joining the community of listeners who make this work possible. We can't do it without you, and your support makes sure everyone can listen. You can give today at donate.npr.orgslash fresh air or subscribe to NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thank you. Today, my guest is computer scientist Joy Bolamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, an organization that raises awareness about the impacts of AI. She's written a new book titled Unmasking AI My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. Her TED Talk on algorithmic bias has over a million views, and her MIT thesis mythology uncovered large racial and gender biases in AI services from companies like Microsoft, IBM, and Amazon. She serves on the global tech panel convened by the vice president of the European Commission to advise world leaders and technology executives on the ways to reduce the harms of AI. You know, Dr. Joy, I. Was really struck、um, by how honest in the book you were about at first, you were hesitant about this idea of being an activist and taking on issues of race within AI and, and computer science more generally because it, you were at MIT 
to create groundbreaking technology. Um, you did not want to be labeled as someone who was taking on issues of race and racism. Uh, that or sexism or any of the isms as the work is intersectional. And so when I got into computer science, I wanted to build cool future tech. And that's what took me uh, to the media lab. I was not trying to deal with various types of isms. And I also understood it would make my life harder, <laughs> you know, if I needed to speak up about these types of issues. And so my thought was graduate school is hard enough. <laughs> you know, why add the added burden of being that person, that person pointing out the flaws, critiquing everything when we're out here just trying to have fun. And yeah. so that was my initial uh, viewpoint until I just saw how harmful these systems could be and who would be harmed, particularly people like me, people from communities of color, women, of marginalized identities of uh, many uh, forms. And I realized that I had a platform, I had the skills and technical uh, know-how to do deep investigations of these uh, systems and that maybe in fact I did have some kind of duty and certainly I had the opportunity to say something and have it be heard. Even in saying something though, you were very aware of the perception of you as a Black woman, I was struck by a story you tell in the book. When you started to speak about the coded gaze, you would practice before speaking to an audience. That's all people do that, but not exactly what to say. Of course, that was very important, but also just as important as how to say it. You didn't want to come off like an angry Black woman. Oh, yes. I actually remember when I was recording um, this video for an art installation uh, called um, High Camera. And in that video, I'm having a playful conversation uh, with a computer vision uh, system. And I'm, so I'm saying, hi, camera, can you see my face? You can see my friend's face. What about my face? That's not how I initially said it. I said, I was like, hi, can you see my face? What about my friends? <laughs> you can't see my face. And so because I, I certainly felt a certain kind of way about the situation. And so I was wearing my own mask to be heard because I understood that if I were perceived as being angry or bitter, that might block certain people from understanding what I was saying and understanding what I was saying uh, actually had implications for everybody because no one is immune from being harmed by AI systems. Also, by that time, I had quite a bit of experience navigating as a Black face in very white places. Mm -hmm. So I also had uh, an understanding from those experiences at how easily concerns can be dismissed because of tone policing and so many other factors. And so part of the strategy was to speak in a way that would allow people to hear me. I've mentioned a few times that you're a poet. Um, you call yourself actually a poet of code. When did it become clear to you that you could use your poetry to bring meaning to, to this larger body of work? It wasn't clear. I took, at first, I took a little bit of a risk for me because I spent so much time wanting to have my research be taken seriously. You were concerned your poetry wouldn't seem objective. I was concerned people might also think it's a gimmick. It's like all, all, all manner of concerns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yet alone, the poetry is any good, right? So there's that part um, too. And so after I published the Gender Shades uh, paper, um, and it was uh, really well received um, in the academic world and also industry. In some ways, I felt that gave me a little bit of a shield to experiment uh, with more of the poetic side. And so shortly after that research came out, I did a, a poem called AI Ain't I a Woman, which is both a poem and 
an AI audit where I'm testing different AI systems out. And so the AI audit results are what drive the lyrics of the poem. And as I was working on that, it allowed me to connect with the work in a different way. This is where the humanizing piece comes in. So it's one thing to say, okay, the system is more accurate than that system, uh, or the system performs better on darker skin or performs better on lighter skin, and you can see the numbers. But I wanted to go from the performance metrics to the performance arts so you could feel what it's like if somebody is misclassified, not just read the uh, various metrics around it. And so that's what the whole experimentation around uh, AI ain't I a woman was. And that work traveled in places I didn't expect. Probably the most unexpected place was uh, with the EU Global Tech Panel. It was uh, shown to defense ministers of every EU uh, country ahead of a conversation on lethal autonomous weapons uh, to, again, humanize the stakes. This is very powerful. And I was pretty moved when I watched a video of you reciting the poem along with those images, which you say they work in conjunction with each other, because this AI Ain't I a Woman is a modern day version of Sojourner Truth's 1851 speech at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. What has been the reaction in these text spaces when you read these poems? What some of the feedback that you receive? The mood shifts. I mean, sometimes I'll hear gasp. It goes beyond what a research paper uh, could do, or even just what I could do simply by describing it, because what the evocative audit allows you to do and invites you to do is to be a witness to what AI harm can look like. And so companies have changed even the ways in which um, they develop their AI systems and some have pointed to that poem and other work from the Algorithmic Justice League as influencing uh, their choices. So again, it for me, it was dipping my toe into the creative space a bit, uh, not quite knowing how far it would travel. If you're just joining us, we're talking with computer scientist, researcher, and poet Joy Bolamwini about her new book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. I want to talk a little bit about solutions because I want to know where you think we are in this push for regulation. I'm thinking about back when cars first made their way on the roads, and there was essentially, you didn't need a license, you didn't wear seatbelts, there were no rules of the road, and it sounds crazy right now, but it was this new technology that was out there, and we didn't have any of that. And so sometimes I think about that when we're talking about AI and talking about technical advances, because where are we in this, in the stage of getting to the point of regulation? No, I love that car analogy. And I actually heard Professor uh, Victoria Dignam say it this way uh, at a UN convening around AI, right? Saying that AI is at a stage where there it's a car with no safety checks, a driver with no license, 
Mm. roads that haven't even been paved. So I don't think <laughs> right. we even have the roads yet, yet alone traffic signs. So we are in very early days uh, when it comes to uh, legislation and regulation around AI. But I will say, we are in a very different atmosphere when it comes to the conversation compared to when I started this work uh, in 2015 is when I started building the Aspire Mirror in 2016 is when I really started doing more of the deeper dive research. And as I write in the book, I would mention AI bias, algorithmic discrimination, and uh, I was sometimes just flat out dismissed, sometimes met with uh, ridicule. And so to have the White House release an executive order on AI, to have a EU AI Act um, in its final stages, uh, to have some of the world's leading companies also acknowledging AI bias, AI discrimination, and AI harm, this seems like the norm now. But it wasn't so long ago when that was not even uh, mentioned when people were talking about AI. And if it was, it was definitely uh, done in a way that was marginalized. So I think there has been uh, significant progress in terms of prioritizing the need to do something. Now there's that something part. What is the something, right? As I mentioned earlier, you met with President Biden this past summer as part of this roundtable with uh, several other experts in this space. What was the, the most urgent message you were able to impart to him? For me, it was that we have an opportunity to lead on preventing AI harms. And the subtitle of the book is Protecting What is Human in a World of Machines. And when I think of what is human, I think about our right to express ourselves, the essence of who we are, and our expectations of dignity. So I challenge President Biden for the U.S. to lead on what I call biometric rights. So when I'm talking about our essence, our actual likeness. So right now, and I do various examples uh, throughout the book, as you know, someone can take the voice of your loved one, clone it, and use it in a hoax. So you might hear someone screaming for your name, saying someone has taken something, and you have fraudsters who are using these uh, voice clones to uh, extort people. Celebrity won't save you. You had Tom Hanks. His likeness was being used with synthetic media with a deep fake to promote a product, you know, he had never even heard of. And so we see these algorithms of exploitation that are taking our actual essence And then we also see the need for civil rights and human rights continue. And so it was very encouraging to see in the executive order that the principles from the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, such as uh, protections from algorithmic discrimination, uh, that the AI systems being used are effective, that there are human uh, fallbacks were actually included because that's going to be necessary to safeguard our civil rights and our human rights. You know, with everything that you talk about, I just keep going back to thinking about this most salient point. Um, You use the term, these are socio-technical problems. What we are really seeing in AI is a reflection of who we are. So your book is really also asking us to look at ourselves too. Absolutely. And lately, with the adoption of AI systems, at first I thought we were looking at a mirror, but now I believe we're looking into a kaleidoscope of distortion. Mm. And this is what I mean by that. I was looking at a a recent uh, test done by Bloomberg News. They decided to test out text-to-image generation system, generative AI uh, system. And so they put in prompts for high-paying jobs, low-paying jobs. So CEO, judge, architect. They didn't look like me, I'll put it that way, right? And then when you had low-paying jobs, uh, social worker, fast food worker, ah, Then we had some diversity, some women too. And then when you put in uh, prompts for criminal 
uh, stereotypes, uh, drug dealer, uh, terrorist, inmate. That's where you saw an overrepresentation of uh, men of color. And I was particularly struck by the example of the prompt for judges. And so in the U.S., women make up around 30% of judges. And this particular text-to-image model depicted women as judges no more than 3% of the time. And so this is when I started thinking of this notion of a kaleidoscope of distortion, because the technologies we believe to be bringing us into the future are actually taking us back from the progress already made that in it of itself isn't yet enough. There is this real fear um, that robots are going to take over the world at some point, that AI is going to essentially be the destruction of humanity. Is that a concern that you have? I'm concerned with the way in which AI systems can kill us slowly already. I'm also concerned with things like lethal autonomous uh, weapons uh, as well. So for me, you don't need to have super intelligent AI systems or advanced robotics to have a real harm. A self-driving car that doesn't see you on the road can be fatal and harmful. Uh, I think of this notion of structural uh, violence, where we think of acute violence, there's the gun, the bullet, the bomb, we see that type of violence. But what's the violence of not having access to adequate health care? What's the violence of not having uh, housing in an environment um, free of pollution? And so when I think about the ways in which AI systems are used to determine who has access to health care and insurance, who gets a, a particular uh, organ. You know, in my mind, there are already, and in also the world we see, there are already many ways in which the integration of AI systems uh, lead to real and immediate harms. We don't have to have super intelligent beings for that. What power uh, do everyday citizens have in all of this? Because it feels like, okay, the power is in these big companies and in the government taking steps to push for regulation. I truly believe if you have a face, you have a place in the conversation about AI. My own story started with sharing an experience, an experience that felt a bit uncomfortable and was definitely Uh, embarrassing. And I wasn't even sure if I wanted to share it. But in sharing that experience, I realized I was not alone. And it encouraged others to share their stories of being X-coded, experiencing AI harm. So I would never doubt the power of your lived experience and sharing your personal uh, story. So as you encounter AI systems, whether it's in your workplace, maybe it's uh, in the hospital, maybe it's at school, you know, asking questions, right? Does this system, why do, have we adopted this system? Does it actually do what we think it's going uh, to do? Dr. Joy Bolamwini, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your knowledge and I appreciate this book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Joy Bolamwini talking about her new book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. Coming up, we listen back to Terry's interview with former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who will be laid to rest this week. She died last week at the age of 96. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a mass mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long term financial goals. Learn more at massmutual.com. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. 
Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest tomorrow in Georgia. She died last week at the age of 96, two days after it was announced that she had entered hospice care. As First Lady, Rosalind Carter became known for her humanitarian work and as a dedicated advocate for mental health care. Terry Gross interviewed Carter in 1984 about her memoir, First Lady from Plains. Here's an excerpt of their conversation. Is there any unofficial job description that exists for First Ladies? Any um, guide that no. exists on paper anywhere? No. How did you know what was expected of you? Well, I really, I really didn't know um, what I could do when I got to the White House. Jimmy had been governor, and I had worked on projects that I was interested in and had had to learn a lot of things the hard way at home because uh, there were no precedents. We had a new mansion and, and no staff, and I uh, had to start from scratch and learn had to do everything, entertain, and um, the state legislature in Washington, I entertain members of Congress, entertain ambassadors from foreign countries in Washington, I entertain heads of state. So I thought that it would possibly be a little bit like the governor's mansion, and it was. And when I got there, I learned that a first lady can do just about what she wishes to. She can be a hostess at the White House and um, not be involved in issues if she doesn't want to be and not be involved in projects. But um, but there's so many opportunities when you get there that it, and so many things that you can do that I think it would be a real waste not to take advantage of those opportunities. How did you choose your priorities in the White House? Well, I had always, for many years, not always, but for many years worked on mental health issues ever since Jimmy was governor, and I became interested in that, in traveling around the state, in the campaign and talking to people. And um, uh, about their problems, and that came up so often. What is will your husband do for my mentally retarded child, or my brother or sister, or my um, uh, relative who is mentally retarded or emotionally disturbed, mentally ill? And so I asked Jimmy about it one day, and he he said that um, if that was what I wanted to do and what I wanted to work on, it would be good because he'd been in the state senate and he knew the need. And when we got to the governor's mansion, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, I'd always worked on women's issues and been supported the Equal Rights Amendment. There were so many things I wanted to do when I got to the White House, and I, I was just eager to get started on my projects when I got there. You were sometimes represented as being the the power behind him who is very influential. What did you think of that press coverage? Well, some of it was ridiculous. People who said that I was the part the um, made the decision to suffer just didn't know Jimmy Carter. He is a very strong person. And, um, um, but I did go to cabinet meetings. The reason I went to cabinet meetings was because Jimmy got so tired of me jumping on him every day when he came home to see, why did you do this or why did you do something that I had seen on television or read in the newspaper or heard on the radio? And, um, finally he said, why don't you come to the cabinet meetings and then you'll know why we make these decisions or why we do these things. So I, I went in. It was very comfortable. I sat in the row around the back of the room with the secretaries who were there, um, and learned based just generally what the administration was doing, which was really important to me because I went out in the country. I, people asked me about what they were doing. I never knew details, but I could tell them generally what the administration was trying to do. And uh, also I could see negative um, news stories and not worry about them if I knew the true facts about something. It was good for my own peace of mind. And if you live there for four years with all of the criticisms, you have to be very confident that you're doing what's right. And I had needed to know that I needed for my own self, uh, for my own benefit, to know that Jimmy was doing what he was doing and why he was doing it, and that it was good for the country and best for the country. Were you criticized at all by cabinet members who felt uncomfortable that the president's wife was sitting in on the meetings? Never. What about from uh, the the public or the press? Again, the the we didn't elect you syndrome. What are you doing there? <laughs> well, I, as I said, I'd learned very early that I was going to be criticized. Even if I had stayed in the White House and poured tea for four years, <laughs> I would have been criticized. So why not do? I don't know anybody. I really don't think I know anybody who wouldn't go to the cabinet meet, meetings and sit in and listen if they had an opportunity. You've described yourself as a political partner with your husband, Jimmy Carter. Did you have to work hard to achieve that partnership? It, it just kind of developed from 
being in the Navy and learning to take care of things while he was gone, and then coming home and working and building the peanut business together and then going to Governor's Mansion and doing my thing, that just it just developed a, a mutual respect for what the other could do. Well, Rosalind Carter, I want to thank you very much for talking with us. Good, I enjoyed it. Rosalind Carter, from an interview recorded in 1984. She'll be laid to rest tomorrow at her home in Plains, Georgia. On the next Fresh Air, how did evangelicals become Donald Trump's most unflinching advocates? That question plagued Tim Alberta as a journalist and as the son of an evangelical pastor. We'll talk about searching for an answer by traveling to evangelical churches around the country. His new book is about American evangelicals in the age of extremism. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. I'm Tanya Moon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Sleep.